cutting in here at the very beginning just to thank a few Patreon members for Unsinkable that have joined over the summer. So I want to say a very special thank you to Natasha, to Rachel, to Tem, and to Jeff. Thank you for coming on board, so to speak, (laughs) in the summer. I very much appreciate it. And just so everybody knows, bonus episodes are continuing as normal at the end of every month over on Patreon. And if you are enjoying the pod and want a a little bit of additional content, it's there for you on Patreon. I appreciate my Patreon members every single day. So thank you. And link to that will be in show notes as usual. So here we go. So I was at the wedding of a close friend recently. And after the wedding was sitting at a reception table with, so I had been a bridesmaid. I was sitting at a reception table with one of the groomsmen and we didn't know each other prior to the wedding. So it was some of the sort of, you know, awkward getting to know you conversation. That's, I mean, fun, but a little bit like pulling teeth sometimes until, you know, one or the other starts talking about something they're really passionate about. And I started talking about my podcast and trying to explain what I do, and then also trying to explain this new side series, kind of side podcast project that I want to take on. And I told him in this very circuitous, not good elevator pitch way, long-winded, aka, uh, that I, I just wanted to explore other places in America because I love the blend of, you know, history and folklore, culture, you know, history of the paranormal, history of you know, why certain places are considered haunted, why certain places just become very imprinted on the American memory, why we're obsessed with mysteries around certain places and events. Basically, just that I want to be able to expand the podcast. And he looks at me and out of nowhere says, so what's the next mythic American place that you're going to research. And it was just the way he worded it because I hadn't used the word mythic yet. And this title of mythic Americana had been rolling around in my head for weeks. And then of course, I mean, you know me. So I viewed that moment as very meant to be that that should be the title of this sort of new project I'm conceptualizing. So thank you, Zach, without a K for, you know, without even knowing it, helping me solidify this concept even more. And I answered his question, by the way, what's the place? And the place right now is Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. One of my favorite places in the world. And instead of some pithy opening, I just want to tell you that no matter how you feel about the Vanderbilts and their money, no matter how you feel about the excesses of the Gilded Age in America or now, (laughs) there is something special and apart from all of that, that happens when you approach Biltmore House. The forest that Frederick Law Olmsted imagined, the organic mix of trees and flowers and just general foliage, this forest he wanted to greet guests with, it's there. It's been born and it's grown into itself. These days you are in a car on the approach road, not a carriage. I mean, probably not. (laughs) But it's slow still, very slow going and hidden 
One time I put Inya on while I drove it and I felt as if I was in a fairyland. The building of the house itself, the largest private one in the whole country. Yes, it's a masterpiece, though. You'll see at times it's got plenty of its flaw, its own flaws. But the experience has been preserved. An experience has been preserved. And it's almost more important than that. The experience of the uninterrupted views of the Blue Ridge Mountains No wires visible, no poles, no seams, no towers. And it's a privilege to stand where George Vanderbilt stood when he found this place, when he decided to buy a plant and create an oasis. In fact, it wasn't even him who found it, of course. And it's a complicated conversation, the private ownership of a historic property. But let's live in the gray with this one. Come with me. Let's smell the smoke from the mountain cabins as he would have. The ways the leaves and the earth smell like some home you've always been searching for. Come with me in search of the ghosts. Metaphorical, literal. Come with me to the library where George sat, where his daughter Cornelia would still imagine him, brandy in hand, long after he died. Come with me to one of America's mythic places. This is Mythic Americana its first nascent incarnation. And this is the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey guys, just a quick note to let you know, this is definitely an experimental episode. I will most likely re-record it in the fall when I do launch an official feed for another podcast. So this may just end up existing as some sort of, you know, strange duplicate Billmore episode on this feed, but I wanted to go ahead and throw the proverbial spaghetti at the wall. I was ready and I want to hear what you guys think about me kind of branching out into other topics. And I would like to hear what you want me to cover. I would love suggestions for places, things to talk about. So, all right, here we go. George Washington Vanderbilt was 25 years old in 1888, where our story sort of begins, although it's hard to pick an origin point. He was born during the Civil War, the youngest child of Wen- of William, I promise I can say the name William, William Henry Vanderbilt, and the grandson, of course, of the infamous Cornelius Vanderbilt, known as the Commodore, the man who amassed, at the time, an unimaginable fortune in railroad and shipping in the 19th century. He'd been born at the end of the 18th century, the Commodore had, to a relatively humble Staten Island household run by Cornelius Sr., Vanderbilt, it was three words at that point, and his mother, Phoebe Hand. As the story goes, the younger Cornelius began working as a teenager for his father, ferrying people to Manhattan, and that at age 16, he borrowed $100 and bought his own periauger, a two-masted, shallow type of sailboat. The mythology, because, I mean, let's be real honest, this story has become a Vanderbilt narrative of a self-made fortune, the myth being that he took a $100 loan from his poor, but 
to note, probably worked to death mother and turned it into an empire. But some research apparently suggests he never even owned that first boat. So there you go. Fortunes are not built in a vacuum. I don't have time to detail the Commodore's entire life, but I hope it goes without saying that even though when he died, he was wealthier than any American ever had been or dreamed of being, it is impossible that he did it alone in any way. His wife, Sophia, operated an inn in New Jersey in the early days of their marriage that literally paid the bills long before he consolidated rail lines. So it's two women that enabled him to, according to... (laughs) many, rather ruthlessly, chase his dream of a transportation empire. Funny how that gets lost in the myth. Both of them do. I recommend Anderson Cooper's book, Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. It gorgeously chronicles the family's birth from this myth, from this money, and it does so from the inside out, of course, because Anderson Cooper is Vanderbilt. So he remembers lavish moments, bleak moments, And he does research on the early parts of his family. So it's all the way back to Dutch New York, forward to the end of his mother's life. I also recommend a book called The Vanderbilts by Jerry E. Patterson, which is painstaking in its detailing of the lives of multiple generations of Vanderbilts. But for now, the basic lineage you need to know to get to George is that the Commodore, who died in 1877, his son was William Henry. Well, one of his children. He had 13. Uh, well, one of them was William Henry. And William's, William Henry's son would be George, who would build Biltmore. But I want to focus on William Henry for just a second for a little bit of background. William Henry, George's dad, was the oldest of the Commodore's children and often called Blatherskite, which meant fool back then, by his father. When he was a clerk in the banking house of one of his father's rivals, he met Louisa Uh, Maria Louisa Kessem, whom he married. He was ill for a time in early adulthood, and his father gifted him a small family farm in Staten Island, where they had the Vanderbilts had originated. But their things looked up for William, who increased the acreage of the farm, and then, given more responsibility by his father, took the Staten Island Railroad from the red to the green. When the Commodore died, he left the bulk of his fortune to the Blatherskite, So George grew up in pure luxury, just absolute luxury. And you should know that the fight for the Vanderbilts to be accepted in old money in New York society was a pretty vicious and long one, one which culminated in the icy truce between Alva Vanderbilt, wife of George's brother William, and Caroline Astor, whose son JJ would board Titanic in 1912. The family home George grew up on in New York took up an entire block of Fifth Avenue. In fact, the whole west side of Fifth Avenue would be taken up by Vanderbilts, an area more north than most of the moneyed New York families. And I will take the time now to point out that a lot of this Vanderbilt story will remind you of plot lines from the new Julian Fellows show The Gilded Age on HBO. The railroad family, the new money family in that show, I personally believe must be modeled at least in part off of the Vanderbilts because the Alva Vanderbilt party, she, I didn't mention what the story was really about, the P, the truce piece that I mentioned between Alva Vanderbilt, one of the wives, and Caroline Astor. Uh, came about when Caroline Astor's daughter, Carrie, wanted to be invited to the party to dance. 
And so Caroline Astor, queen of old money New York in the late 19th century, had to very passive aggressively, it turns out, but uh, had to sort of finally greet and acknowledge and attend the party of one of the Vanderbilts in order for her daughter to be accepted by who she wanted to be accepted by. So very uneasy kind of meeting of old money and new money. But that story is, is in the Gilded Age show, and you'll probably recognize some other pieces of the puzzle too. So I do think the family in that show is modeled after the Vanderbilts. So George had little interest in the railroad. He was interested in the money though, let's be clear, and more specifically, the collection of paintings, sculptures, and books amassed by his father. As a boy, he kept expense books and lists of things he'd read. He was a cataloger by nature. In 1888, where we started, and then I backtracked and went a hundred different directions, sorry, he was the only unmarried child of William and Maria, and he continued to live at the family home with his mother. His father had died. He was, according to many accounts at the time, and remember, this is an era basically when if you went to the powder room and were in there too long in a public at a public event, it could be announced in the newspaper. So these accounts have him sort of a confirmed bachelor who was more interested in his books than attending balls or making the society rounds at all. He had inherited millions by his mid-20s from the Commodore, and in the wake of his own father's death, he was estimated to have a worth of $12 to $13 million at age 23. That's in the 19th century, with an annual income from interests of over $500,000. He bought a property in Bar Harbor, but hated Maine in the winter. Uh, he worked on renovating the family home. None of this really seemed to excite him very much. He's looking for a new place. Um, every All of the old money people are in Newport or Bar Harbor, Maine. Again, these places don't interest him. Interest him. So most of the of the history, like articles, books, um, just long form anything that I've come across about Biltmore House, have said that you know part of the story here is that he was trying to find a way to spend his money. <laughs> where do you put where do you put all this money? Which sounds ridiculous because I, I think most of us can't relate to that thought. But unfortunately, that was sort of the attitude of a lot of these really wealthy young people in the Gilded Age. Of course, it's a question so privileged, most of us want to vomit at its implications. In 1888, George went south with his mother to Asheville, North Carolina, which already had quite a reputation as a restive and recuperative spot for those ailing with lung issues, breathing issues, or under strict orders from a doctor, I use that term loosely still at this juncture in American history, uh, to breathe cleaner mountain air. When the Vanderbilts arrived, the rail station was known to some as Asheville Junction, but to some as best, named after a Boston railroad man who had run the Western North Carolina Railroad in 1880. They stayed at Battery Park Hotel. I want to take this moment to read an excerpt from a book called The Last Castle, the epic story of love, loss, and American royalty in the nation's largest home. It's obviously about Biltmore, and it's by an author named Denise Kiernan, I did a giveaway for this book on my Instagram account, 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 account. It's late, guys. I have to record late at night during the summer when my kids are asleep. Um, 
I did a giveaway for it on my Instagram and I really encourage you to read it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book about the history of George, his wife, Edith, a lot of the stuff I'm going to cover in this episode. So it was a huge source for me. I really appreciate her work and I, I really recommend it and her prose is at times just absolutely stunning. And I want to read a little excerpt. So mother and son stayed at Battery Park Hotel. That's where this paragraph starts. And I'll read from here. Um, and I'll tell you when the quotation ends. Quote, the peaks of the Blue Ridge and the Smoky Mountains adopted varying shades of that indigo hue, each ridge glowing lighter as it receded behind its neighbors, until they faded into a wash of pale gray azure, grazing the sky, cloudy wisps clinging to their slopes. The beautiful and bewitching smokiness emanated from the trees themselves, the lungs of the slopes, exhaling emissions often in the form of a blue haze of isoprene. The Battery Park had views to spare, its own house orchestra and wide awning-topped verandas. So it's evident that Asheville is already a place with a sort of comfortable nook for the wealthy to rest in. (laughs) So there's already a nice hotel. There's already the sense that it might be you know, like I said, a sort of restive place for people to go to get away from hustle and bustle. So I think sometimes it's painted that George Vanderbilt sort of discovered this area or made it that, but it's certainly not the case. A lot of that was already going on. So anyway, definitely read the book if if uh, Biltmore is something that interests you as much as it does me. I couldn't put it down. And it was wonderful to see academic work done on the Biltmore and to see everything referenced and to really feel the research underneath everything. There's a lot of depth to this book. And Kiernan agrees with most historians, most writers about Biltmore that on some level, part of the moment is that George is out on horseback during one of these first trips down to Asheville with his mother. His mother is recovering from an illness. So she's there for those restive elements, the fresh air and, and under the care of a doctor at the time. So anyway, he's out on horseback and he sees Pisgah, Mount Pisgah. This is the origin story. It's the creation moment for Biltmore Estate. And now usually I'm completely against this notion that history is made in single moments. But in the case of an idea sparking like Biltmore, I suppose it's possible. He began buying up land around Asheville in June of that year. And he often bought the land under other people's names to keep it secret, worried about driving prices up. Uh, He wanted the land cheap. He didn't want word spreading that the Vanderbilts were moving south. And to be clear, he displaced a lot of people, transient workers, homesteaders, former slaves, black families, and some held out. And I don't blame them. I mean, some held out for years and years. And in that defiance is history as well. George quickly recruited two people at the height of their Gilded Age powers to help him realize this this dream of a castle in North Carolina. First was Frederick Law Olmsted, landscape architect who, among many other places, designed Central Park. And you should definitely know who he is and look him up. And then also Richard Morris Hunt, architect who 
basically worked on retainer for the Vanderbilt's not really, but he built a lot of Vanderbilt mansions or you know, designed them. And it's worth noting that when the press asks him what's going on in North Carolina and he's still being, you know, kind of secretive, all he'll say is that there's a chateau in the French Renaissance style, quote, for Mr. Vanderbilt's plantation. And you know, it's just a grim reminder that the dialogue of a slave South is still very much there. It's only 25 years after the Civil War has ended. And obviously, the questions of black labor, the questions of race relations, and, you know, not settled at all. And running in the background of the story of the building of Biltmore is a story of race in the South. So both men are aging at this point, but they have con- been considered such the gods of what they do for wealthy elite families that they are ecstatic to be a part of, you know, what is seen as sort of the biggest adventure of all time among this set. So Olmsted imagines a little kind of I talked about it in the intro, just an approach. This idea, and this is borrowed from British land, British landowners who would do this as the approach to their homes. This idea that it's a, an experience and a process to get to the front door and that your view of the house, your first view of a stately house should be dramatic. So you should, you know, disappear into a thick, wooded, organic forest, feel like, like you're deep in the belly of a forest, and then emerge all of a sudden into the facade of an epic home. And so Olmsted designed this for George Vanderbilt. And the forest that Olmsted imagined now, you know, is there. And what he wanted for the land, you know, conservation, regeneration for the forest that had been cut bare by craftsmen desiring wood over a year over the years, you know, by the timber industry, the fires that would you know, rage over this part of the mountains. And the soil was weak from corn and tobacco farming. I mean, the southern landscape was scarred in so many ways, but he had a dream of reimagining it all and replanting it all and creating this haven. The French Broad River runs through the properties that Vanderbilt started snatching up, a river that the Cherokee had called River Agiqua or Longman, (laughs) And make no mistake about the feudal design of the village George envisioned as well, him and the big grand house providing land for tenants to manage a very humble, in comparison to his, lifestyle nearby. George would do a great deal for Asheville. He built a church, schools, he sponsored a black men's organization. But what's lost is sometimes the actual history of those places. They're a line on the philanthropic resume of a wealthy person when we write about them, but we never, or until recently, you know, historians have started to do this over the past few decades, but traditionally we'd never really dug into the histories of those things that wealthy people are sponsoring. And by doing this episode, I think I'm a little guilty of that as well. I did want to mention that there is a great travel show on You'll, go, you'll realize where I'm going with this in a second. But there's a great travel show 
on PBS with Samantha Brown, and she used to host shows on the Travel Channel. And if you're similar to my age, I'm 37, then you might remember just, you know, coming home in the afternoons after school and putting on the Travel Channel, and it was Samantha Brown traveling all over the world. Or maybe I'm just weird, but (laughs) I love her, and she's still traveling and still, you know, she's kind of a travel journalist, um, presenter, host. But she does a great show on PBS called Places to Love. There's three or four seasons. I binge them during the early part of the pandemic, and she's back out on the road now. But she goes all over the United States, but also all over the world. Most of the recent episodes have been U.S. because she hasn't been able to travel internationally, you know, recently. And she just goes to places in a city, in a town that are – you know, not just the stereotypical off the beaten path, but historical, culturally significant, you know, restaurants that really represent a diverse food culture or diverse chefs, or that really speak to the type of flavors and cuisine of a specific area. She goes to, she talks to people who run nonprofits. She talks to people who run black owned businesses, um, hyper local places. So she recently did an episode on Asheville, and there's a great segment where she's walking around and seeing murals and art in the traditionally black part of the community in Asheville. And she also goes and visits the building where there's a com- an African-American community center that I believe when I was watching it, I was like, I think this is the same one that dates back to George Vanderbilt. But she's talking to someone who knows the whole history of Black Asheville and, uh, you know, entrepreneurship in Black Asheville. And so anyway, I highly recommend that episode. And it made me think that the through lines are just always there. You know, I had been reading a lot about this and I'm just sitting on my couch watching a show and suddenly it's someone, you know, pointing up to the 19th century era building and saying, you know, that was the boys club that, and I don't know, it just, it's, it's so wonderful to see such a through line. So, you know, George Vanderbilt did a lot of wonderful things for the community, but it's, you know, it's a slippery sort of conversation because there's also a little bit of like a white savior narrative that could be interpreted there. And also, like I said, this design of a town is a bit feudal, a bit like, you know, British uh, feudal system. So it's complicated, as they say. And I think George wanted excess. Uh, he wanted to do good as well, and no one doubts that. And I, you know, you should look up a you should look up uh, online a portrait of him, long face, very contemplative, looks like he's a person who has very deep thoughts. And so I don't doubt that at all. And uh, judging by his library and, you know, everything that he learned from his travels all over the world, he must have been truly, truly intriguing person to sit down and have a conversation with. And one of the most studied, learned people probably in the United States at that point. So just balancing the conversation. (laughs) But, you know, he wanted excess. He wanted a French chateau. There's no way around that part of this story. And anyone who crafts a narrative of him having built this home in some philanthropic haze only, no, it's, 
it's an important place. It's an important American place. Its history is in the earth now in North Carolina, but it was born of luxury and the want of luxury. So building did commence, uh, inspiring spurs of railroad simply to move materials to the site. It was a huge work site. Locals came on board the process, obviously, as workers. Their hands built it because hands build things, and particularly then they did. Richard Morris Hunt died in 1895 before the house was completed at all. Uh, Olmsted was also aging and ill, and Gifford Pinchot was brought in to supervise this concept of a managed forest. He would go on to manage the U.S. Forest Service, so he actually didn't stay with Biltmore really permanently very long at all. And I am very sad to inform you, Pinchot would serve on the board of the American Eugenics Society in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, He turned Biltmore over to a man named Carl Schenck, though, who would go on to build Biltmore Forestry School with nothing but a few cabins and the forest as a classroom. And there's no time here to go into the full story of the environmental movement around this time in American history. It's a really crucial debate. And Schenck kind of represents one part of it and Pinchot the other. And they argued a lot about the vision for Biltmore, about whether these forests would be used for profit or not, you know, conservation only or conservation and profit working together. And that's a big part of the debate. But I'll link a couple of books in the show notes to recommend if that's an avenue you'd like to go down. So George, in the meantime, is traveling the world for art for Biltmore while construction is going on. He's looking for books. He's looking for clippings for Chauncey Beadle, who ran the nursery and would, and that would be, you know, plant flower clippings. And Beadle would run that nursery for 60 years and become a really, really crucial part of the history of Biltmore. He essentially became the person who knew that place the longest and had managed that place the longest. I, side note, I'm convinced that my husband's family is related to him because they are from North Carolina and it is well noted among genealogists in the Beatles family that at some point it was just Beatle without the S. So Anyway, (laughs) I am convinced I'm um, kind of related to Chauncey Beetle. So bricks went up, limestone to cover it, 287 train cars worth of the limestone all the way from Indiana. It was built to be fire resistant with no wood used in the roof's construction. Later on in the process, artisans, of course, added ornamental work to doors, windows, balconies, sculptures went up. The famous stone lions took their place. Inside began to bloom as well. Tapestries from all over the world acquired at auctions. No expenses spared. Friezes, furniture, paintings. Napoleon's chess set. And, uh, you know, in part two of this episode, we'll probably talk a lot a little bit more about some specifics on on the interiors and and what's been, you know, renovated and restored over the years too. Um, The interior featured the tile work of Valencian master Raphael Gaustavino. So George is 33. He's anxious to move in, which is ironic given he'd end up spending only a a fraction of the year each year there after it was ready, but that's kind of what this wealthy set did. 
After six years of construction, visitors came for Christmas. A scientific arboretum George had imagined with Olmsted hadn't come to fruition at all, and the grand music room was unfinished at a bare subfloor. Some staircases were not even in place yet, but here's what George's first visitors would have seen so close to the turn of the century. 250 rooms, 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, three kitchens, 65 fireplaces, an elaborate modern heating system that kept all 175 freaking thousand square feet warm. My question is, why do you then need that many fireplaces? But it became, at that moment, officially the largest home in America. I want to read one more snippet from Kiernan's book, and it's a description of the entry from you know, the front door as you walk in. And if you've been to Biltmore, I've been about seven times. <laughs> that tends to be my MO, right? Just doing things repeatedly over and over, but things I love. Uh, and I have to say, I was going to include in this episode an attempt at a really poetic, you know, paragraph of my own, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word, uh, about the entry to Biltmore and about how it feels to walk into that home. It's so beautiful. And when I read Kiernan's description, though, I thought, well, I'll just read hers because there's no way that I'll match this. So here we go. At the home's entrance, sorry, quote, beginning quote, at the home's entrance stood the pair of marble lions, finally free of their cages, roaring at the arrival of the season. Stepping past the beasts, guests entered the home's vestibule and climbed the stairs into the main hall, gliding over the marble underfoot and admiring Gaustavino's artistry soaring overhead. To the left was the grand staircase, reminiscent of the one in the Chateau de Blois in the Loire Valley, gazing skyward up to the 102 cantilevered steps and four floors that the staircase traversed one saw a 1700 pound wrought iron chandelier good god which was held in place by a single massive physics defying bolt in the entryway closer down to earth was a sculpted bust of richard morris hunt of course the designer who had recently died this is biltmore in 1895. Around this time, the Cathedral of All Souls also opens. This is the church that Biltmore you know, has built for the area. And it's its own important story. And I point you to Kiernan's book for some detailed information about it. And you can also, you know, look online, look at the Wikipedia entry, that'll lead you to some places. But the history of the church, which is right there in Biltmore Village, is... Uh, really its own thing. And I don't have time to cover it in this, but George had a specific vision for it as well. But then he wasn't really in town a lot. So, you know, the church had its own um, population and its own managers and its own, obviously, clergy and everything. So it's its its, its own story. So I, I definitely encourage you to look uh, into that. And this is proper for a Titanic podcast, but I want to get back to some of the human elements of this drama sort of playing out. And part of it plays out on the North Atlantic in the fall of 1897, as Biltmore is mostly complete. And George asks 
a friend, William Osgood Field, to accompany him on a, an Atlantic crossing to go to Europe to do some shopping, to attend some theater, to just kind of, you know, Europe it up as the wealthy set did during these times. Obviously talked a lot about that in terms of Titanic. So Field seems to have orchestrated at this point, at this juncture, a setup with a woman. And Kiernan does a really good job of laying this all out, but it very much seems like friends of George's have employed Field to sort of act on their behalf to try to match make someone with George. And, and they pick a woman named Edith Stuyvesant Dresser. They all end up on a ship together headed over to Europe in the fall of 1897. The gossip columns have a field day. George had been considered this confirmed bachelor. It was crazy if he was inter- even entertaining the idea of courting someone. And, you know, at the time, if you were part of a New York old money family, which Edith was as well, you were just fair game. Your appearance was spoken about, written about in the press. You, you know, your your nose, your facial structure, your height, your general countenance was picked apart in newspaper columns. And when matches or potential matches were sort of announced, like, oh, so-and-so is courting so-and-so, then uh, people got down to the nitty-gritty of sort of breaking down how each party looked and whether they had, you know, the physical attributes of of their family, you know, kind of nose do they have, that sort of thing. It is so horrific to go back and read through. And it's unsettling how familiar it all feels, given what happens on social media these days. I mean, we're doing the same thing, you know, when a a famous person posts something on Instagram, for example. I mean, look at the comments, actually, or don't. I don't recommend how many people just directly feel as though they need to comment on someone's face, weight, uh, personal hygiene, whatever. It's really not changed that much um, that people feel like they need to do that. So Edith Dresser, she was old New York money, kind of. Uh, Her parents had met at West Point. Uh, George Dresser had been a cadet who, according to Edith's maternal grandfather, was not good enough for his daughter, Susan Fish Leroy, even though George was educated at Andover and came from a line of lawyers and teachers. Apparently that wasn't good enough. (laughs) Names were currency in the Northeast, and the Fish Leroy's had a lot of it. But love prevailed, and the super-rich... Fish Leroy, married the respectable, respectable, but not so rich, the dresser. And I've already mentioned the show, The Gilded Age, but this is a big deal, new money, old money, mixing kind of thing. Susan gave her daughter something crucial for the circle she knew her daughter would be in, a middle name with limitless currency, Stuyvesant, after their relative, the Dutch governor, Peter, which made Edith a descendant of the New York Dutch as well like George Vanderbilt. And, you know, there's a neighborhood in New York, Bedford, Stuyvesant, Bed-Stuy is what people call it. And that's the family. Uh, Very well connected, uh, long running, long, long, very, very wealthy uh, New York family. So she lived in Manhattan in a three-story home uh, as a small child with a glass conservatory that overlooked the yard, a peaceful existence where Edith kept 19 turtles 
as a child. But sadly, her parents died when she was just 10. It's not clear what the illnesses were. I didn't find that out. She would go on to live with her mother's parents, uh, with her sisters, splitting time between the retreat of popular Newport, Rhode Island, like I mentioned, and New York and Europe, where Edith and her sisters could live on their smaller stipends because of lower cost of living in Europe. Money went a lot further and they could still be fancy, basically. She was all money New York with no money. I certainly believe she played a part in the orchestration of the whole deal. You know, Field is writing letters to her, to her, well, no, she's writing to Field's parents at some point. These people all very knew each other very, very well. And Field is writing to his mother a lot about the comings and goings of George and what his relationship with Edith is. It definitely reads through these letters that circulate among this set that there is a plan in place. Like, hey, we need to get Edith and George together. They're both sort of getting up in years for back then, you know, like late. I mean, she is younger. She's only in her 20s, which for a woman was um, getting to be older um, and unmarried. And George was uh, in his 30s. But, you know, a sort of feeling of, hey, let's get two of the same people in our group together. But I I think that Edith probably had a lot to do with that. You know, and by implying that she didn't, you sort of take her agency and her wit and intelligence in that situation away. I mean, she knew what she was doing. She was part of an old money New York family that had lost their money. So she is, you know, attaching herself to another family that still is solvent. And it, it fills the tradition of keeping these New York old money families together as Vanderbilts are now sort of considered old money at this point after a uh, <laughs> climb up that ladder, so to speak. So I think she's very aware of what she's doing. It's, you know, a consolidation of, of some things and allows her to stay in the world she's accustomed to. And I mean, there is a lot of evidence in their sort of comings and goings in Europe that fall that they did spend a lot of time together, though it seems like it's it's most of the time with Field as a sort of chaperone, as a sort of, you know, not really third wheel, because I think he's there encouraging the match. But they do spend time together. And for all I know, they were 100%, you know, deeply in love, love at first sight. But I, I don't know. From what I've read, it seems to be the case. It seems to be a very methodical, thought-out pairing. And they kind of slowly get to know one another through field and then you know, sort of mutually decide, like, okay. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Edith knew what she was doing. So they're married in June of 1898 in Europe. Press, once again rampant after their marriage reports of the queen returning to her castle kind of thing. It's sort of crazy, you know, in a nation founded on the throwing off of Britishness that the worship of British traditions at the elite level would be so obvious. <laughs> uh, employees, many servants stood on either side of the carriage as the Vanderbilts pulled up as husband and wife for the first time in front of Biltmore Estate. Gardeners held vegetables. Dairy workers stood cloaked in sharp white. Foresters wore twigs in their coats. And Edith took an oval bedroom in lavender 
and gold. Uh, when I have visited and visited with my family, we call it the LSU room because we are from Louisiana and that purple and gold combination can mean nothing else to us. So that's always what we joke about. But it was lush. It was gorgeous. Walls of silk dressing, windows in floor length velvet. And that's all still there. You can still see that room. But this this is what she came home to, and this is what she knew she was coming home to. And that's where I'm going to leave things for today. Biltmore House is mostly built. Uh, there's still a bare subfloor in the music room. The organ has no real organ in it. And a lot of the plans that Olmsted and Pinchot and Vanderbilt had set around and discussed in the late 1880s don't necessarily come to fruition, but a lot does. You know, the house is mostly complete and Chauncey Beetle is on site managing flowers and plants and the Olmsted forest is coming to life and Carl Schink, the forester, is running very, very important forestry school that was one of the first in the nation on the grounds. So it's a vibrant scene. George Vanderbilt has built something that, you know, is now at this point in the late 1890s, sustaining a community. It's sustaining a community. It's providing jobs, but it's a very complex situation as I've talked about a lot in this episode. So that's where we'll leave Biltmore. And in part two, I'll discuss Edith and her work in Asheville, which was really important, and her life there with George. They'll have a daughter. Yeah, we'll talk about some life at Biltmore, what it was really like to be there. It's sort of heyday. And then we'll talk about how it's become what it is today, which is, a, you know, privately run, still largest home in America, uh, not a museum, but an experience, and now also a winery and restaurants and, you know, an entire world that you can sort of escape into in Asheville. And it's really survived the test of time. I mean, physically survived. I mean, there's no other house from that era that is still in place and still has, you know, its original contents. So yeah, we'll talk a bit about how Biltmore became what we know it as today. And we'll also talk about the ghosts of Biltmore, you know, who, who literally and metaphorically still haunts that place. And I don't mean to do like a cliffhanger. <laughs> Suppose that's what it is. But my husband and I had a bit of a paranormal experience when we were there last summer. It was not our first time there. We'd been there before many times, but had very uneasy feeling in one part of the house, which led us to do some research. Uh, so yeah, I'll share a little bit about my experience, talk a little bit about uh, what ghosts are supposedly there. But more importantly, and this is what Mythic Americana is going to do, we'll sort of discuss why we want so badly for there to be a mystery in places like this. Uh, we want something to solve. We want 
we want our ghosts, you know, wandering down hallways. We don't want them in our face necessarily, but we want them wandering down hallways and we want them representing bygone eras. So there's so much symbolism in how we talk about hauntings and ghosts. And in part two, I'll explore, you know, another part of what I want Mythic Americana to be, which is not necessarily a paranormal podcast, but but an exploration of places deemed haunted and just an investigation into why or how or how hauntings and their the folklore and cultural history attached to them can really teach us a lot of history. So yeah. And I want to take I want to say a special thank you to Amy Bruni who I do not know in person at all. Full disclosure. Uh but her podcast Haunted Road really inspired me. Uh she is a paranormal researcher. She has a show on Travel Channel and Discovery called Kindred Spirits, but she's also a podcaster and in her podcast she really blends the history of a place with her own personal experiences investigating. She also talks to, you know, docents, house managers, site managers, historians that run some of these supposedly haunted places. And they talk about what actually goes on there, what people say goes on there, and and where they think the origins of some of these stories are. So really want to thank her for being a huge inspiration for me in this sort of branching out process. It's a great podcast. Definitely check it out. I have emailed her. I would love for her to come on the show. Keep your fingers crossed. Or Amy, if you ever stumble upon this, please, please, please. I would love, love to talk. I think we are two very like-minded people. So there you go. All right. I will see you back with part two at the end of the month. I hope you're having a fantastic summer. I miss you guys. It's weird to be recording and uh, this isn't really unsinkable. I mean, it is, but it's not. So it feels strange to uh, to do this and then to, I'm sure when I press the publish button, it's going to feel odd to introduce you to something new. But thank you as always for being supportive. Um, email me, find me on, well, I guess you should know my email address. Um, unsinkablepod at gmail.com and show notes, of course, too. Uh, Instagram and Twitter, I am at unsinkablepod. If you have stumbled upon this episode through a Biltmore search and you're new to any kind of Titanic podcast, you know, go back to the early part of the feed, maybe give a couple a listen, see what you think. All right. Talk soon. Bye, guys.